Abraham went called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance abode and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with the foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. Well, hi there. Welcome to Jubilee Church Teesside. This morning we are continuing in our journey through the heroes of Hebrews 11, real men and women that pleased God by their life of faith. What I love about these characters is that they weren't that dissimilar from us with all our warts and scars and all. As the Apostle Paul phrases it in 1 Corinthians 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In short, these heroes were just ordinary people following an extraordinary God. And so today, as we've just heard from Joy, Jess, Jemima and Charlotte, we are going to be looking at Abraham and his family. A man who has been described often as the big daddy, the father of faith. So the question I want to pose to you as we tuck into this section of Hebrews 11 is what does it take to do radical things for God? And really what I want to explore is particularly the emphasis that encountering the living God changes everything. By faith Abraham, when called to go to another place, obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. That's a phenomenal statement. You see, Ur of the Chaldees was where Abraham was originally from, generally was thought of as the kind of place where people moved to, not from. It was the largest city in the world. And from all the luxury items that archaeologists have dug up from its ruins, it was probably the world's most richest city. 
If you manage to buy a good property there, you were made for life. Its citizens were the envy of the world. They didn't do camping holidays. On top of that, Abraham was an idolater, idolater probably worshipping the moon god Nana. Abraham wasn't looking for God when God came looking for him. But after one encounter with the living God, he was thoroughly convinced. I believe this is a season where God is making himself known high above all the things that we have associated with worship. He's removed our physical temples, our church buildings for a season. He's isolated and quietened us amidst the loud sounds and frenzy of life and business and programs and schedules. He's curtailed our strategies and proposals and projections and planning for a season. Why? Well, Philip Greenslade describes it like this. To share the Father's heart, to feel what he feels, to identify with his interests, to be committed to what he is committed to, to see with his eyes. As C.S. Lewis put it so brilliantly, this season of change and pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know what? Have you, have you ever parked your car and someone's tapped you on the shoulder and you shouldn't have parked it there? And the first thing you think is, who's asking? Who do you think you are? Who are you to tell me what to do? Does that ring a bell with anyone? Well, maybe it's just me. Who's asking a big question? Well, often in the Bible, before great men and women are asked to do challenging things, God preempts this response from us and tells them who's asking. When Moses is called to confront the most powerful man on the earth, Pharaoh, God says, do not come any closer. Take off your shoes, Moses. This place that you're standing is holy ground. I am God. That's who's asking. Before Joshua takes the, uh, the promised land, he encounters God. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. That's who's asking. In Abraham's life, when he and Sarah were promised a son by God, even though she was <clears throat> postmenopausal and infertile, Sarah laughed. It was preposterous, ludicrous, balmy. Genesis 18 tells us, But then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. She's not laughing now. In fact, it goes on to say Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. I love the detail. In the Great Commission, the risen Jesus is one step ahead of his disciples as he gives them the biggest mandate of mankind, a mandate that will make many of them homeless, despised, fugitives, martyrs. Before you give your life to that, you need to know who's asking, says Jesus. So he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus. Therefore, do what I tell you. Abraham encountered God. He took God at his word. Increasingly, he got to know his personal God so well through numerous mess-ups that eventually he was prepared to do whatever God commanded. He, he knew who was asking, even to the point of sacrificing his one and only son. 
We don't like the, to dwell on that story too much, but let me tell you, when Abraham came down the mountain, embracing his beloved son alive and witnessing how God had provided us, provided a sacrifice in place of Isaac. He was a changed man. He wasn't grumbling like we do when we hear this story out of context. He wasn't feeling upset at God while he was coming down that mountain, as we might sometime interpret things. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He was actually awestruck by the wonders he had been privileged to see. A glimpse of God's great rescue plan. What God had told him at the start of his faith journey. I promise you that you will be the father of many nations. And in the future, they will become great nations. Some of them will even be kings, king of kings even. After that test, was start, all of this was starting to make sense. That's what Jesus tells us in John 8:56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Who's asking? God is. Now we, now we live in a unique point of history and geography where people don't like a God with all authority. All powerful creator gods. Oh no, society would rather take that position on themselves. Never has there been a culture in all of known history like ours. The atheist Richard Dawkins writes, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it. Not any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's a pretty frightening concept. Whatever we think, none of us can live like that's true. As those of us who have encountered God, we see things for real, differently, not brainwashed by society and self-centeredness, but a reasoning that has been a solid foundation, an enduring foundation for centuries. Richard Taylor, an eminent philosopher, wrote this about that kind of thinking. The modern age more or less repudiating the idea of a divine lawgiver, has nevertheless tried to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong, not noticing that in casting God aside, they have also abolished the conditions of meaningfulness for moral right and wrong as well. Educated people do not need to be told, however, that questions such as these have never been answered outside of religion. This pandemic has opened the world's eyes to this. We are not in control. He is. Gyeong was born in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. Her father had the lofty position of being an assistant to President Kim Jong II himself. But then, one day out of the blue, the president's attitude towards Gyeong's father changed. They became undesirables and were immediately subjected to political persecution. Age six, she and her parents fled as refugees to China where they became Christians. What, what a good news story, you might be thinking. Unfortunately, her story didn't end there. After only a few short months, Gyeong's mother, pregnant with her second child, contracted leukemia and died. 
Not long after that, her father was arrested by the Chinese authorities and sent back to North Korea. He spent three years in prison, tirelessly sharing his faith before finally being released and allowed to leave the country. Grief wouldn't mute this minister of the gospel. Prison couldn't contain him. But the story is still not finished. Shortly after being re reunited with his daughter, Gyeong's father felt called by God to return to North Korea to help others come to know Jesus. He was discovered by the authorities in 2006 and he disappeared. He has never been seen since. In all probability, he has been shot dead. Throughout history, there have been many stories like this one. How far should believers be willing to serve God? What price should we put on the cost of discipleship? Should a father be willing to sacrifice his daughter's well-being for God? Would God really ask a father to do that? These are the tough questions that the Bible poses. Like Abraham, like Gyeong's father, like many other countless Christians over the, <coughs> over the years, Martin Luther Jr., John Bunyan, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, only when you know who's asking can you live such a life of cross-carrying faith. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.7, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. They all saw that very same city of verse 10, a better country, a heavenly one, that Abraham saw, which made their lives now worth living for the reward of eternity. This city theme runs throughout the Bible, actually. In fact, it's a tale of two cities, Babylon, humankind's city, the city of war and lust and anger and jealousy, of greed and lies and prostitution and violence and injustice. And then there's God's city, Abraham's foreseen city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the joy of the whole earth, the home of God's people. Babylon has waged war on Jerusalem for centuries, a master of disguise, staying sharp, always seducing, always evolving, always catering what, to whatever sinful desires are in fashion. But Abraham's city is, is different. This city, the city of God, has managed to affect human cultures all around the world. She is filled with peace, beauty, justice and worship of God. A city on a hill, a light in the darkness, a royal priesthood. This city doesn't fight with swords or scuds or suicide bombs, no way, but with service, sacrifice, prayer, building local churches, a city within a city that loves it and serves it from the inside out. It's Abraham's and Sarah's city. It's your city. It's my city. It's our kids' city. What does it take to do radical things for God? An encounter with Abraham's God. Where do we get the strength and endurance and faith to do this? Well, the gospel, of course, the joy news of Jesus. This is how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes what's happened after God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac uh, and presenting a ram in its place. Abraham felt his heart leap with joy. He unbound, as he unbound Isaac and folded him in his, in his arms. 
Great sobs shook the old man's whole body. Scalding tears filled his eyes. And for a long time, they stayed like that, in each other's embrace, the boy and his dad. And as they sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of the fire die, in the cool night air, the stars above them, sparkling in the velvet sky, reminding Abraham of God's promise to him of many tribes and many tongues, worshipping the Lamb of God. God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But in order for this to happen, they must trust him. One day, someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do whatever his father asked him. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his one and only son, the son God most loved, the cherished lamb of God.